Now let's pray together. Father, I join my heart with these brothers and sisters before me now. And we want our prayers to ascend to your throne room. Give us the grace to be confident, Lord, that you hear us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're able to translate our deepest groans into prayers. Lord, we come before you this morning hungry for your word and needing it more than any of us even realize. Lord, we thank you for the children that just shared with us your name, your names. We'd be fools not to trust you again, Lord, to supply our need. And so, Lord, would you do that in this moment in a way that you would get all the glory for it? Both in the speaking and the hearing and the fruit that comes from it, we pray that you and you alone would get the glory for all things are from you and to you and through you. To your name be the glory forever. Amen. People are hardwired for imitation. We were made to mimic others. We see this evidence for this all around us in God's creation, and you don't even have to look any further than even in the home to recognize it. A small child from the youngest ages will begin to mimic or imitate older brothers or sisters, mom and dad, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. But it happens. I mean, I have some pretty hilarious examples of it, even from the last few days. Uh, what was that phrase that Mariah was using? Was that? Oh yeah. So we're at the we're at the table. Our two year old Mariah is telling me something, and she's very engaged. And she she's speaking. She says, "All of a sudden," and then she keeps going on. And I'm like, "Where did you get that?" <laughs> you know, she just she's grabbing that phrase and now in, applying it to her own storytelling. You know, she just absorbs it. Or I've heard her also in this past week use this. Ugh. Ugh. To express when she's angry or when she thinks she should be angry. And I think, where did she get that? I'm not going to name any names. Um, we see this in friendships too. When we're around other people, we tend to even, just not even conscious of it, but start adopting other people's mannerisms. Have you noticed yourself sometimes even using phrases that other people use, right? Yeah. Um, I've been told in the last month from my wife, like, you know, you're starting to laugh once in a while like John Decker. <laughs> and I take that as a wonderful compliment, brother. But we begin to mimic those who we are around. We are made for imitation. On, a, on the most ultimate level, this is in large measure what it means to be made in the image of God. We were made to mimic God. We were made to imitate the character of God. I love just hearing uh, from these children earlier their reflections on what they're learning about the different names of God because these names bring out different characteristics of who God is, right? And so when we adopt those in our own lives, God is able to look down, as it were, into the mirror of our lives and see a reflection of himself, of his own beautiful, glorious character. And uh, so we were made for imitation, but 
we know that in a fallen world, what God means for good is often corrupted and used for evil, right? So I think we'd all agree that in a fallen world, not every example can be followed, right? Some people are worthy of imitation and some people are not to be emulated. And so it can be difficult sometimes to sort that out and navigate the jagged edges of the Christian life as we're trying to figure out who, what examples can we follow? But make, make no mistake, we do need examples to follow. We need, have you ever thought about that yourself? Like sometimes we don't grow very much because we don't even know what it's supposed to look like, right? And so there is a hunger and a godly heart to want examples that are worthy of imitation so that we can follow those examples. And um, one thing I've loved about Philippians chapter 3 is I feel like we have in Philippians chapter 3 a spirit-inspired example to follow in the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in so many ways in this passage, he just models Christian maturity. You want to know what it looks like to be a mature Christian, to think maturely as a Christian? We look at the Apostle Paul in this passage. It's just laid out for us. And I think this is actually, it's written this way, inspired by God in this way, for us actually to, to imitate what Paul is expressing in this passage. And there's really three things that I want to draw our attention to, that I think God would have me draw our attention to from Philippians chapter 3. Three things about Paul that are worthy of emulation. I'm going to name them up front, and then we'll look at them in turn. The first is I want us to look at where Paul puts his confidence. I want us to notice where Paul puts his confidence, and that's where we're supposed to put our confidence. Second, I want us to uh, notice how Paul thinks about his own efforts might seem kind of abstract right now. I, I trust it will become more concrete. But Paul's going to process and think about his own efforts and how we should think Christianly about those and we can follow Paul's example. So where Paul put his confidence, um, how he thought about his efforts, and finally, uh, where Paul put his hope. Where Paul put his hope. So let's start first with where Paul put his confidence. He says in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These are really strong words, and this is a stern warning in verse 2. Some will use the the, the word Judaizers to describe those whom Paul is warning about in verse 2. A group of people, Jewish background, who would seek to have Gentile believers basically become Jews, right? Tell them they have to be circumcised in order to fulfill the law and have right standing before God. And so Paul, in issuing a strong warning against this kind of teaching and influence, he reserves some very harsh language, doesn't he? Look out for the dogs. Now, dogs in that day were appreciated a little bit less than the dogs in our day. We have a multi-billion dollar industry in our day to make sure that dogs are pampered in every way, that even the most spoiled children are, right? Uh, 
these were not men, man's best friend, you know, back in these days. These are these scroungy, mangy animals that were scavengers, and they were filthy. And, and so, one of the, if you wanted to find a derogatory idea to throw at somebody, just call them a dog, right? Well, Paul is using very strong language for those who are claiming to be clean but are actually truly unclean. They're dogs. He says, look out for the evildoers. And they really are because they're seeking to use their influence that can lead people into eternally dangerous places. So is he right to use this kind of language? Yes, these are those who mutilate the flesh. And they're just like a reference to circumcision, those who are calling others to be circumcised in order to have that standing before God in fulfillment of the law. Now, that word flesh is going to be important because Paul is going to say this in verse 3. We, speaking to the believers, including himself, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, who are set apart by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and get this, and put no confidence in the flesh. So I'm saying one of the things that we need to imitate in Paul's life is where he puts his confidence. So far, I haven't told you where he puts it, but I'm about to tell you where he's not putting it. He puts no confidence in the flesh, right? No confidence in the flesh And others that would encourage you to put confidence in the flesh, he's using the strongest of language to warn against succumbing to their influence or you could say following their example, right? So it's very strong. Paul's saying, I put no confidence in the flesh. And even as I was reciting this a few moments ago, like I kind of love that little turn in verse four. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, right? So he's saying, according to my former life, you know, I myself have reason for confidence. Let's like, look, if you think you have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives a tour of the trophy case that he used to have, right? So we say, well, what does it mean to have confidence in the flesh for someone from a Jewish background like Paul? He's going to give you it. His pedigree, a tour of his trophy case his resume, if you will, all the things that he could, if he wanted to, have confidence in, in terms of his flesh. So, what does he say? He says, circumcised of the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Just pointing out, like, he was part of the set-apart people of Israel, all right? That already separates him from most of the world, right? He's part of the people of Israel, He bears the marks of circumcision to prove that set-apartness he felt with that ethnic group. And then it says of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, this elite tribe that could even boast of having Jerusalem as part of its allotted inheritance. And so he can summarize, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. All right, let's keep going further. As to the law, a Pharisee. Okay, Pharisees were respected of that day in terms of the people who understood the law most accurately and applied it most rigorously. These people were the most painstakingly obedient people to the law and held other people's feet to the fire as well. And on top of it, do some historical background, he studied under one of the top teachers of his day. And so Paul could really say, just like Martin Luther, when he was a monk, he could be like, look, I was a monk of monks, right? Everything they did, I did better and greater and took it to another extreme level. He could say, as a Pharisee, that was me. 
So we could take it a step further. You want to talk about zeal as a Pharisee, not just, you know, doctrine, but like practice and how we, how we apply this. When it comes to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Paul saying, I took this to the most extreme levels. I took it to heart. I was zealous for the law, Paul would say. And then, Ends with a summary statement. How about righteousness under the law? This general blamelessness. He's saying, I was blameless when it came to general obedience to the law. So Paul's saying, you want to talk about confidence in the flesh? If anybody had reason for confidence in the flesh, he's saying, it would be me. But where does Paul put his confidence? You know, there was a day for Paul, and he's acknowledging that. There was a day where he had this trophy case, all these things that he could just boast at, give you a tour. He'd shine them up and make sure they're shiny and that, oh yeah, this is when I did this. This is when I did that, right? All the things he could boast in his flesh about. You know, if you want to think about in financial terms, and he kind of uses that, you know, you have one column for gain. And here he's talking about his ethnic background as an Israelite, as a member of the tribe of Benjamin, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as a Pharisee, down the line. He's, all these things were gained. These were all things that meant, these were so core to his identity, for who he was and the standing that he believed he had before God. And there was one thing that you could put in the other category that he would count as a great loss. You know what that was? Or who that was? Christ. That's where he, that's how he used to lay it out there. But Paul, by the grace of God, came to the realization that he had the labels exactly backward. That everything that he was counting as gain can actually not provide what he needs before God and should really be in the lost column. And everything that he thought was worthless and should be stamped out, right? Persecuted of the, persecuted the church of Christ, that should move into the gain column. By the grace of God, he realized that he had it exactly backwards. So he says, but whatever gain, quote, gain I had, I counted as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he says, and I count them as rubbish. Some will take that as trash, or you could say manure, or, if you will, a combination of the two. Paul is saying, I took all my trophies. When my eyes were open, I took all, I just ransacked my trophy case, and I went out back, and I threw all of them, these shiny trophies that I once prized. And I threw them on top of the manure pile. And that's how I saw them. And I didn't feel empty because I had one thing. One person. And that was Jesus Christ. I had him. I had true gain. Like Jesus' parable of the kingdom when it says he's like a man that goes into a field and stumbles upon a treasure. And when he sees it, he buries it, goes joyfully and sells everything that he has in order that he might gain that one thing, and he's found that one thing, and that changes absolutely everything for Paul. So where does he put his confidence? He puts it in Jesus Christ. Not in his traditions, not in his credentials, not in his resume, not in anything to do with Paul. 
But what was it about Christ that he that was so important for him to have confidence in Christ, in Christ alone? He has one thing in his trophy case. Now, notice how it continues. He did this in order that he may gain Christ. You see, you can't have all these other things and have Christ. It's one or the other, right? Paul understood that. He said, I had to count these things as loss in order to gain Christ. Insofar as I'm still boasting all these things in my trophy case, I can't have Christ, right? Because I'm looking to other things in order to gain favor or standing with God. And so he says, he counts them as rubbish in order to gain Christ and be found, here's that key phrase about union with Christ, in him. How does someone become in him? In Christ, united with him. Answer? Huh? Faith. I want to see some confidence. Not having, but hey, that, that was better than any, the rest of you. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It is by faith that we become united with Jesus Christ. And why is that so important? Thanks for letting me play with you. Uh, why is that so important? Well, he says this, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. What was he doing before? Trying to establish a righteousness of his own on the basis of his own obedience to the law, right? His own, you can say, um, his own Devotion to his traditions. And he's saying, there was no true righteousness to be found, or at least not a righteousness that could actually provide the favor I actually need before God. So he says, having a righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, so no confidence in the flesh, no confidence with anything to do with me. but." That righteousness is implied, which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, he's saying, I am staking my whole life. I have nothing else to lean upon now, nothing else to boast about. One thing, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, the life he has lived, and I'm trusting that by by faith, who Jesus is and what he's done, the life he has lived, is credited to my account and becomes my eternal gain. Apart from that, I have no righteousness of my own. It's like this. One example that comes to my mind, and don't, don't, don't be too nitpicky with it because every analogy breaks down. This one's almost dead on arrival. But just think about this. <laughs> no, that's a great way to set up an analogy to be helpful, right? Um, but think about this. You imagine two guys going in for a job interview, right? I used this a long time ago, and I still think it can be helpful illustrating the basic point. So imagine two guys going in for a job interview. There's like this 40-story t- you know, uh, skyscraper tower that they're going up to the executive office at the very top, okay? And they're both preparing for this interview. And one of them is spending weeks getting his resume together and detailing it, trying to think through how he's going to word why he should be in that position, 
right? Why he should gain that position at the top of this company. And so he's painstakingly giving himself to thinking about all these reasons why he is fit for this position, and he works hard on it. And this is, on one level, an extremely impressive 15-page, 12-point font resume, okay? There's a lot there. You would be impressed, maybe. So he prepares this resume, and he takes that elevator up. with Sorry, he's kind of rehearsing it, thinking about how he's going to make his pitch. He gets up there in the office. The executive looks across the desk and be like, all right, lay it out for me. Tell me. You know, you got about, you got about 15 minutes. Go ahead. And he just starts laying it out as eloquently as he knows how. And he's working through page after, and he's actually feeling pretty good about this because he was well prepared. And when he's done and he used every bit of that 15 minutes and, uh, and he says, so that is why I think I'm fit for this position. And the executive pulls the his resume over to him, looks at it, takes a big stamp from the side, stamps it, sends it back. And the guy's like, yeah, looks at it, denied. And he's just terrified. The other guy <laughs> passes this guy on the elevator on the way up. Uh, he's going up. He enters the office. He says, okay, tell me why you should... Be fit for this position. And and he says, you got 15 minutes. And the guy's like, sir, I don't need to take very much of your time at all. I really don't have much here. And so can I just give you this? And so he slides his resume uh, to the top. It's just one page, one line, 12-point font that says, see attached. And it was just the resume of another. And so he says, all right, so he pulls out that other document, slides it over, and he's reading it, the one line, and then he starts reading the resume of the other resume that he had seen. He says, sends it back, accepted. Now he goes down, he's in that position. You say, why? The basic idea is this. This doesn't happen in the business world, right? That's why it's dead upon arrival. Right, But when it comes to the courts of heaven, when it comes to standing before a righteous and holy God, there are going to be people that follow the example of the Judaizers in one way or another, trying to put confidence in their own flesh, in their own traditions, in their own sense of what they think is going to be acceptable before God. And I'm telling you, according to this text, if they boast in one of those trophies before God as their true confidence, declined is what is going to happen. This text is teaching us that in God's courtroom, in terms of setting before that ultimate executive, we can only boast of one thing, and that that is the resume of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our righteousness, and to put our confidence in any other place is a fool's errand. And it's eternally dangerous to do so. And that's why Paul is so blood earnest. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, because this is not a game, and it's eternally unsafe. 
to put one's confidence anywhere else than Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross, the righteous life that he did, the merit that he earned before the Father by his righteous life. We're staking our life on that being ours by faith. That's what it comes down to. That's what our confidence ought to come down to. Now, of course, there's massive implications for that, and I think we've already felt some of them. If there's anybody here today that's trusting in anything else, tradition, trusting in your own accomplishments in any way, or even your own sense of moral uh, you know, success in your life, it's not going to stand on Judgment Day. I just point to the authority of God's word and look at Paul's example here. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. It's totally outside of us. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith. So, but it's not just The reason why we need to hear this word about confidence and where Paul puts it is not just because um, there might be some out there like we used to trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in Christ alone. It's because all of us can still have a very real temptation to mix up the labels, right? We can mix up the labels and before we know it, we're off kilter in the Christian life and we're unsettled in different ways. Why? Because we are starting to put confidence in our flesh. We all do this at different levels, at different times. All of a sudden, all these insecurities start cropping up. You know? And you're like, where is this coming from? Well, it's because I've shifted finding my identity in Jesus Christ, who he is, his finished work, to finding identity in myself, in what I do. Think about this. Something as simple as this. Is Bible reading good? Please tell me yes. Yes. Uh, Is prayer good? Yes. Good things, right? So why is it that sometimes if you miss your Bible reading time in the morning, you feel like it's just done. You might as well not even talk to God the rest of the day. It's because you subtly shift into performance mode, thinking you have to earn something before God in order to be able to talk to him. But why could you talk to God in the first place? Was it because of you? No, it was because of Jesus Christ. Has that changed? No, you just shifted off kilter. And so you switch the labels. You start counting the things that have to do with you as your gain and the things that have to do with Christ as your loss. And it needs to be flipped again in our minds. And so it's just good for us to check our hearts and go, Am I off kilter here? Have I switched the labels again? Am I counting Christ as my ultimate gain? And there's a reason why Paul starts this chapter and says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul can't help it. He's like, we are the circumcision. Like we have the spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, who's our righteousness. We put no confidence in the flesh. All of our confidence needs to go to Jesus Christ. And when we start shifting from that confidence, we need him by his grace to help us shift back to that rock from which we were cut. Amen. So look at where Paul puts his confidence and let's put our confidence in that same place in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. 
a righteousness we never had on our own. So look at the second thing about him. That was the most foundational one, the one we'll spend the most time on. But these other two are important as well. I want us to notice, secondly, how Paul thinks about his efforts. Okay? Now that Paul, he could say, he's justified. He has a right standing, right? He's approved, not because of his righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How then shall he live? Right? How then shall we live? I love this. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If the first nine verses were about justification, how we gain a right standing with God, these next verses are about sanctification and how we progress and become more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, I was trying to explain this to my kids in simple terms the other day and just thinking, you know, the really basic thing is this. In this section, we're talking about, okay, we know him. Now, our chief aim in life is to get to know him more and more. Now we have his presence in in our lives. Now we want to stay as close to him as possible. Is that fair? Does that capture this next section pretty well? I know him and I want to know him more and more. How honorable is it when a husband marries his wife and then stops wanting to get to know her? You just assume, yeah, I know enough. (laughs) The wives are like, (laughs) nudging her husband, (laughs) you better say something. Uh, No, we want to, like the beauty of a marriage is you get to know that person more and more and more in the same way we know Christ. And now it's the greatest joy in the Christian's life to know him as much as possible. Knowing full well, we won't know him perfectly in this life and he's infinite, so we won't exhaust him in the life to come. But there is no higher joy in the Christian life than to know him, than to know him. And Paul is saying, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. In other words, I want to know him, not just intellectually, I want to know him with an experiential knowledge. I want to have an experiential knowledge of God. There is a big difference. And how would you get to know God more experientially? What's his next phrase? I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. If I were to take a mic around, should I do it right now? No, I won't do it. Take a mic around in this room and interview, you know, dozens of us. And I would say, tell me now, where and what times in your life have you got to know Jesus Christ the most? What kind of things would we be talking about most of the time? Sufferings, right? And if I were to ask you at the end of your sharing time, like, would you trade it? You'd say no, right? Because I've tasted and seen that he is good. There's something about walking through the fires of sufferings and being held by our good shepherd that has a way, like just all these children reading these names of God off. You know, it's one thing to learn those names, maybe even memorize them. It's another thing to have an experiential sense of those things because we've seen God provide, provide, right? Because we've seen God's power. Because we've seen God show up in our lives. 
because we have sought to know him deeply, experientially. We haven't shied away from going to places where we're going to experience sufferings, and we haven't shrunk back in the midst of our sufferings. We keep walking because it's in those times that we come to know him. And is there anything more important in the Christian life than knowing Christ? We say it, but do we believe that? To know him in the power of his resurrection. It says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here he's talking about glorification, this great aim of the Christian life. That time when Jesus Christ comes back, it's going to show up at the very last verse in this chapter, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This is Paul's ultimate hope. That's going to be the day where he knows Christ more fully. Now he just sees in a mere dimly. But then, then he'll know much more fully. And so will we. So he continues in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, right? He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Then he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's a certain humility that Paul is uh, modeling for us here, a certain humble realism in the Christian life. He recognizes that he is not going to be perfected on this side of heaven, right? He knows he hasn't arrived. And this is important for us because sometimes we can have successes in the Christian life and we can kind of go, yeah, we're good, you know, we're good. And Paul's saying, look, I know I'm not perfect. And in one sense, I'm not going to be perfect on this side of heaven. But what does he say? But I press on to make it my own. One thing I want us to notice in this passage is some of the language that Paul uses. He uses language like, I press on to make it my own. He's going to say in verse 13, straining forward to what lies ahead. So one thing we can think about how Paul thinks about effort is this. There is no contradiction from him recognizing that the finished work of Jesus Christ is what earned him a right standing with God. And I'm going to press in with a tenacity in the Christian life to know Jesus Christ intimately. I fear that for some people, those two realities are mutually exclusive. They don't see it. They say, if you strive, then you're automatically trying to earn your salvation. I don't know. Paul didn't seem to have a problem with that. Paul seemed to be able to say, no, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The very fact that I'm found righteous in Christ should make me want to press on and know Christ in this life. Amen? Isn't that there? Oh, if we have an allergy to striving to know God in this life, there's something malfunctioning in our souls. Some will say if you're striving, you're not understanding justification right. Well, if you're striving to earn favor with God, you're not understanding justification right. But if you don't strive to want to know God passionately in this life, then the doctrine of justification is not working itself out beautifully in your life. just want to help us see that those two things are meant to serve one another. The reality of our justification, our right standing with God, is meant to encourage and motivate our 
earnest strivings, not to be to have favor with God, but to enjoy the favor that we have with God. Now, Paul, in using this striving language in verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is so instructive, what Paul is laying out for us here, what he's modeling for us here in his mindset. On the one hand, he's saying, I have not arrived and I don't claim to. Okay? And he's saying, this is how he's thinking about the past and the future, right? Forgetting what lies behind. Now, that could probably be taken a couple of ways. On the one hand, you have your life of sin. Imagine for Paul, what would it have been like? Like, he persecuted the church of God. And he was proud of it. It used to be a trophy in his trophy case. Like, you know what that means? And like, he literally was going into homes, dragging people away to prison, separating moms and husbands and wives, pulling parents away from their children. He was bringing people before authorities that could put them to death. And when they needed another vote cast, he was glad to cast his vote. You talk about a haunting past life of sin. And Paul can say, forgetting what lies behind. Well, judging by what he just said in chapter 3, has he forgotten it? No. But is it crippling him for the rest of his Christian life? No. It's not crippling him for the rest of his Christian life. He's able to recognize his sin for what it was. And one of those massive things that Christ had to die for to redeem his soul. He's able to remember it in the sense of being instructed by it, you know, but not in the sense of being crippled by it. Paul's modeling a way, I think, of how we should think about our past sins, even from this past week as we've confessed them. Forgetting what lies behind, there's a fresh start, right? But not just our failures, but also our successes. Right? Because what happens with our successes? It's amazing. You know, you start thinking about your successes, right? You start thinking about something God used you on, like even something just really like God used you on. And you are fixating on it. Like he really did use me on that, you know? And you press into it a little, you're meditating on how God used you. And pretty soon, you just did the thing. And God's not in the equation anymore, right? And so you get puffed up with pride. And so in some ways, Paul is able to say, forgetting what lies behind, both in terms of my past failures and my past successes, I'm not going to let my past successes puff me up with pride and derail me. And I'm not going to let my past failures cripple me and paralyze me from being effective in the Christian life. I'm going to forget what lies behind. This is a powerful thing. I mean, in a lot of ways, um, we are, we're able to take something good that we have done by God's grace and with God's help, and we're able to right there on the spot praise God for it, rejoice in it, transfer the glory to God, and then move on. Just encourage us not to fixate on the things that God uses us to do. Just press on and do more, right? Press on and do more. But also don't fixate on our failures because they just cripple us. If we have confessed our sins, he's faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so look at the maturity. And then notice what Paul says. 
Let those of us who are mature think this way. Isn't that sweet? Let those of us who are mature think this way. Have this kind of balanced mindset. We haven't arrived, right? I'm not going to be crippled by the past, both in terms of my successes or my failures, and I'm going to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. I have my mind set on this future reality. We're going to see the return of Jesus Christ. This is a mature mindset in the Christian life that I want so bad to mark me and I want so bad to mark you. And we don't have to look any further than this spirit-inspired example of the Apostle Paul to know what maturity looks like in the Christian life. So one more observation we close on from the Apostle Paul. We've looked at where Paul puts his confidence. We want to follow suit. It's dangerous to do otherwise. Uh, we've looked at where Paul puts, uh, where, how Paul thinks about his efforts, right? And now let's think about where Paul puts his hope. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. There's a really helpful discipleship principle embedded in verse 17 that I don't want you to miss. So in one sense, I can say, hey, let's follow the example of the Apostle Paul. But then we talk to the Apostle Paul, and what's he saying? Yeah, follow my example. Follow me as I follow Christ, right? But also follow the example of those who walk, who, who walk in the same, you know, same example, those who are living it out. And uh, I just think there's a really helpful principle here because um, we talk a lot about discipleship because our calling till Jesus comes back is to make more maturing disciples of Jesus Christ, right? And um, so some of us, we're walking alongside of other people to do them spiritual good, to help them grow in Christ, right? Well, you might be meeting with someone, and I hope that many more over the our years together are going to be equipped and are going to be pouring into other people investing. Now, it just so happens that you may be the main person that's investing in a particular person, right? And there's always this sense in us, this kind of need to be needed, you know? And part of us in our flesh can really like being a main shaping influence in someone's life, okay? And there's nothing wrong with being a primary shaping influence, right? Maybe even a primary example to somebody. But notice what Paul does here. You know, he says this, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have for us. So I just say this, you do not want to create a sole reliance on you as you're discipling somebody else. You don't want them to think that the Christian life begins and ends with you. In your flesh, you're going to want to do that, but you got to resist it and let a principle like this shape you to where you're going to want, you're going to see the beauty and you're going to be actually intentional about helping them be shaped by other people. The thing about it is this, is there any one perfect example of the Christian life in our church? (laughs) <laughs> no, right? Some of you are like, I don't know, I'm pretty close. No, it's good. <laughs> right? There's not, right? But the beauty of it is, is we're all going to have different strengths and weaknesses. And so within the body, though, there can get to be a pretty holistic picture of a beautiful Christian life, right? And so I think it's a beautiful thing to, yes, be an influencer, but point at other examples and even encourage them to get help, get counsel from other people so that they're being well-rounded and shaped by the multitude of examples that God gives within a body of believers. Amen? I think that's something to really practice for us practically. So Paul's saying, 
Keep a close watch on them. And this is really important, Paul says, because there are people that don't walk in that example. There's people doing the exact opposite. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Can you think of a more devastating description? I mean, you thought dogs was bad? Enemies of the cross of Christ. The symbol of the only thing that can save us from our sin. The only thing that can separate us from, you know, stop us from spending an eternity in hell is the cross. But to be an enemy of the cross. But he's not done with this description, right? He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earth. And I can't help but think about this as almost a description of our culture in a lot of ways. <laughs> they glory in their shame. Things they should be ashamed of, they glory in. Oh, God forbid that that would be us, but it does give us a strong warning. Careful who you follow. Careful who you follow. Not just personally, but online. Right? What podcast you listen to. What news network you listen to. I mean, we have to be careful because these things are discipling us. These things are teaching us. We need to be careful what examples that we are going. And are we following people that actually... Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They're glorying in their shame. Let's not follow these things. Now, what I really want to get at there here, all this though, is Paul's just contrasting good examples, bad examples, but then really what he's landing on is he's saying, but hey, that's not us. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This last aspect of Paul's example that we should seek to emulate is his hope. His hope. There was nothing more precious to Paul than his heavenly citizenship. It was expedient at times for Paul to have his Roman citizenship and he leveraged it at times, just like we might our American citizenship. But for him, there was no comparison compared to his heavenly citizenship. And notice it says there, for our citizenship is in heaven. Like even currently, right now, we're not waiting to be citizens. We are citizenship, citizens of heaven right now. And that citizenship should be the primary identity of our lives. And if it is, we're going to be waiting. And we've already seen what that waiting looks like by looking at the the passage right before this one, right? The paragraph right before it. Straining forward to what lies ahead. That waiting looks like pressing on. Waiting looks like not being crippled by confessed sin. Waiting looks like not getting puffed up by past successes. Waiting looks like pressing in to know Christ. Waiting looks like walking through suffering with Jesus Christ. Waiting looks like longing to be fully and completely whole again. To have our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This should be the crowning hope of the Christian life. There should be very few days that pass where this hope doesn't drive us forward in the Christian life. Do we want what Paul wants? Do we hope 
in what Paul hopes in. This is the sweetest, one of the sweetest truths we can think of in the Christian life. Jesus Christ is going to come back. And when he does, he's going to resurrect the dead. And those who have trusted him are going to be radically transformed. As one of our fighters said not that long ago, I tell you, I tell you a secret. I tell you a mystery, right? We shall not, I, all, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, right? The trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable. This is our hope, beloved. If he talked about where we should put our confidence in the justification that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone for our right standing with God, our sanctification is all about knowing this God and knowing this Christ. And our hope is bent, is bent on waiting for him to come from heaven and close the gap between who we are positionally and who we are practically, we are ultimately going to be conformed perfectly to the image of Jesus Christ. It pays to follow certain examples, doesn't it? But of course, Paul would say, it's not me. It's not my example. Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. And who are we ultimately being conformed to? Paul? No. To transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body.